you have your Bibles, please open them to Revelation chapter 1. If you need an outline for the message, you can pick it up right out the center doors there um, to get started. Good morning, everyone, again. How are you doing? In our house, it's usually pretty calm and most of the time when Sheila and I are there. And once in a while, uh, I would hear Sheila, you know, let out a scream and I'll go into the room. And it's oftentimes there's a spider there. How many of you have a fear of spiders? How many of you have fear, a fear of snakes or, or, or something like that? I mean, how about public speaking? That's number one on the list. The people's greatest fear is public speaking. How about uh, uh, you're, you're saying, I'm, I'm afraid of maybe heights. I'm kind of, I don't really like heights. The older I get, it seems like I don't like heights. Or claustrophobia, or fear of tight places. You, you have that? Many of you have that? There are, there are bigger fears we have. The fear of death, the fear of rejection, the fear of not being accepted in, in this world by other people. I want to tell you today that Jesus conquers all those major fears in our lives. That, that through his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven, through his present work, that Jesus conquers all those major fears in our lives. We're beginning a new series today called Do Not Be Afraid, Alive Evermore. And it's taken from Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 through 18. If you have your Bibles, hopefully you've turned there. Every message in this series, all the way through Easter, will be taken from those two verses. Uh, although we will be going in other passages of Scripture in the Gospels, we will be in the Gospels too, uh, a lot too. Today we're going to be in some the previous verses there in uh, Revelation chapter 1, beginning at verse 12. While the title of, of this series is called Do Not Be Afraid, the message could be titled today, Fear. Just fear, just fear. Uh, the word fear is used a number of ways in Scripture if we look at it. Most often it's used, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. The Bible says, I'm going to be with you. You're never alone. God says that the words himself to us. Jesus will say that in words in Revelation chapter 1, verse 17 through 18. He says, do not be afraid. But the message today is fear. And there's another meaning for fear that means a reverential awe of Jesus, of God himself. And the message today is about him. They were just being reverence and awe of Jesus. In fact, fear is legitimate. Let me read you some passages this morning that talk about fear. You can write them down as you listen to them. Psalm 90, verse 11 says this. Who knows the power of your anger? For your wrath is as great as the fear that is due you. Psalm 89, verse 7. In the counts of the holy ones, uh, God is greatly feared. He is more awesome than all who surround him. Psalm 96, verse 4. 96, verse 4. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be a feared above all gods. And then the close of the book of Ecclesiastes, our memory verse for this week, Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13 and 14, where Solomon writes, Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. The fear of the Lord is beginning the wisdom of knowledge, of understanding that, right? To be in fear or fear him or stand in reverential awe of who he is. Knowing that there's no one like him. There's no other gods like him, like God, like Jesus, right? No one else is like him. He's different from all others. Let me give you a little bit of background in Revelation chapter 1 as we get into this. Uh, it takes place around 90 to 95 A.D. in the first century. And the apostle John is now the last of the living apostles. Uh, all others, to our knowledge, were killed prior to this point. So uh, John is the last one. 
And John had walked with Jesus now uh, 60 years earlier prior to this. Uh, he had been with him. He had watched the miracles. He had watched Jesus, heard the messages, looked intently at the ways of Jesus. And now 60 years has passed. Domitian's the emperor at that time. Domitian was as ruthless as Nero was many years earlier in the uh, late 60s AD. So Domitian takes the last of the living apostles. And Jesus, uh, John was a pastor in Asia Minor. Many people believe it was in the church of Ephesus. And exiled him to a little island called Patmos. Uh, because of the ministry of the gospel, he was exiled there. We don't know all the details of that. If he was confined to a certain area, if there was hard labor, we do know he's not there for a short-term mission trip, but he was there exiled because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I like to think that maybe the motivation of Domitian that he had in putting him there, this is the last of the living apostles, so what I want to do is silence him. So no one else will be able to ever hear anything he has to say. So I'm going to take this man and put him on this little island of Patmos. John was probably between 90 and 95 years old at that time. And he said, I'm just going to let him die. I'm just going to let him rot out there. And no one will ever be able to hear him again. They won't hear his voice anymore. I won't have to hear his voice anymore. Except for the fact that Jesus gave John a message, right, in this chapter. And John saw a vision of Jesus here. And Jesus revealed to John things to write, which is the whole book of Revelation. He writes while he's on that island. And, and not only did Domitian, the, the emperor, not silence John, but millions of people have been reading what happened on that island all through the centuries now, right? They've been reading this. And God is in control. The vision that John sees is a vision of Jesus that's going to change his life and it's going to change his message, change everything about him, what he sees on that island. And so John is on the island. He's in a trance. And Jesus gives him a vision. Let's read about it in verse 12 through 17. He says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. When I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. What John saw here in this vision, he saw Jesus in all of his holiness. And the wording in the description takes us back to the Old Testament, takes us back, the wording taken from Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 9, and Zechariah chapter 4, and indicating that what John saw was a fulfillment of the prophecy of Messiah that was going to come, prophesied centuries earlier, this was. And now John, what he saw, and the way he described it, and the words that he used, what he's saying there, he's saying, this is the one that was prophesied through Daniel to Zechariah. This is the one right here. This is him. And you read further in verse 18, you find out that this person that he's talking about was Jesus. This Jesus, no other than Jesus. But as soon as he turned around and, and looked at the voice that was, was coming, where it was coming from, the first thing he saw was seven golden lampstands. And those seven golden lampstands are identified at the end of the chapter as the seven churches of Asia Minor, the Bible tells us. And I like that God used the metaphor as a lampstand to refer to a church. 
Because a church is the, the lampstand in the community, right? To shine light, light in the darkness, right? That's what they're supposed to do. When Jesus was dictating to the seven churches in Asia Minor, in, in Revelations chapter 2 and 3, he cautioned them. He said, repent. If you don't repent of your sins, I'm going to take away your lampstand. And to have your lampstand removed supernaturally by Jesus means it's over. The church is over. And he warned them, I'm going to take it away if you don't change your ways. You don't repent of your sins. So he saw these seven golden lampstands, John did, but that's not what caught his attention. What caught his attention in the midst of those seven golden lampstands, what drew his attention was a vision of Jesus that he saw there. He saw Jesus is what he did. And, and I like the picture that Jesus is surrounded by those churches. Jesus is there, and he's surrounded by those churches. And those churches and every church and our church, Jesus is our message, right? Amen? He's our message. He, he's our foundation. He's our cornerstone. He, he, he's our capstone. He's our motivation. And, and this church thing, this is Jesus. It's his. It belongs to him. And it's a beautiful picture there that Jesus is in the center and the churches are surrounding Jesus, that he's right in the center of all this. And, and, and then what John does, he describes a picture here of eight different ways to describe Jesus is what he does here. And there's a danger in trying to put too much into the symbolism of this, I believe. But there's also a danger of not looking closely enough to see what it means. So that's what we want to do this morning is look close enough to see what it means but not go too far. Okay, And I just want to share is usually when I'm preparing for a message, I usually kind of go into several different commentaries. And as you go into different commentaries, what I usually find is agreement am I, among those that write them. But there's a lot of disagreement in what these eight di different descriptions are of Jesus. So out of my study, this is what I came to the conclusion. And you kind of hear why I came to that. So eight descriptions of Jesus. But remember, what we're trying to get is a picture. That's what I want you to get this morning. A picture of Jesus. That's what John is giving to us, a picture. So we want to look at this picture. The first one, the way he describes Jesus, Jesus is judge. He is judge. He, he talks about a robe and a sash, dressed in a robe and sash, reaching down to his feet with the golden sash around his chest. There were two groups of people at that time, leaders. They had long robes that were part of the Jewish community. One, the first was uh, the priest, and the second one were the judges. You can tell the difference between the two. Because the priests would wear their sash around their waist, indicating service. So if they had to work or, or anything like that, do their work, they could take the robe and put it in their sash so they could work hard and they could run or whatever. The judges, though, were different. The judges had their sash came around across their shoulder and came across their chest like this. So this picture here is of Jesus. Jesus says, judge, as judge. Notice the second thing. Uh, with the hair, second description. He's talking about Jesus is eternal. His hair was white like wool, white like snow. Reminds me of the wording in the book of Daniel where he describes Jesus as the ancient of days. Not meaning that he's old. What it means there is that he's eternal. He's from everlasting to everlasting. A few verses down, he'll say, I am the first and I am the last, he tells them. So the wisdom of almighty, everlasting, eternal God is what he's saying. Never had a beginning, nor will we ever have an end. He's eternal. The third way is described, and I love this one, that Jesus knows everything. His eyes were like blazing fire. There's some people that you know, I don't know if you know anybody, just has the look, they can look at you and you already know. Boy, they know something, right? When I was a kid, my father had that look, that uh, 
There was four boys, and we could be someplace, and if he looked at you, you better wise up. You better stop what you're doing, because he had that look. You knew if you didn't, you were in trouble. He knew something, whatever was going on in your mind, he knew it, and you had to just pay attention. Jesus had the look. Can you imagine the look of Jesus, who knows everything? Eyes of blazing fire is what the Bible says. And he's standing in the midst of those seven golden lampstands, and he's dictating this letter to them in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. He knows everything about the church. Before reading their annual report, before interviewing the elders, before talking to the pastor, he knows everything about the church and everything about them. Even the things that are hidden, even the things that people try to hide, he knows everything. So when Jesus says something, he says, I have this and I know this about you, I have this to get you, you can't argue with him, right? Because he knows everything. He knows it better than we know it. He knows our heart, he knows our motives, he knows everything about us. The Bible gives us a story in Luke chapter 22. A couple weeks ago, I, I shared part of this story. It was when Peter was warned that he was going to be betray Jesus. And he said he wouldn't, but then he did, right? He did. He did betray him. And the Bible says when Jesus was arrested, he was taken to the high priest's house. That was Caiaphas' house. And it was kind of outside that Jesus would be out that house. But then Peter kind of followed him. It was really Peter and John there, but, but just Luke 22 just says Peter was there. And Peter was there. Remember, there's a fire. I talked about the fire that was there. And they're standing around the fire, and um, Peter denies Jesus right there at that fire. And when he denied him the third time, the rooster, the Bible says, crowed. Remember, he said, you're going to die me three times before the rooster crows. Well, the rooster crows. And the Bible says this. It's really unique in Luke chapter 22. It says that Jesus turned, and he looked at Peter. He was an eye, eye of Peter. He looks at Peter. And then Peter was reminded of the words that Jesus said about, you're going to deny me. And the Bible says that Peter went out and wept bitterly. The eyes of Jesus are like blazing fire. He knows everything, everything. And one day, every one of us is going to stand before this judge with eyes of blazing fire who knows everything about us. Every one of us. There will be two different judgments for every one of us. And every one of us, one for believers and one for unbelievers, every one of us will have to stand before judgment. Every one of us will have to stand before this judge Jesus one day. Every one. Every one in this room. Everyone you will come in contact will stand. The one judgment, we, we call it the judgment seat of Christ. We'll say that one's here, the judgment seat of Christ. It's talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1, that every believer who knows Jesus Christ, your Savior, is going to have to come and give an account for the things done in the body, whether good or bad, right? The purpose of this judgment is not for sin. It's not for condemnation. That was taken care of the cross, right? The Bible says, therefore, there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. But this judgment seat that we have to come to, we're going to have to give an account to Jesus for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. And this is a good, good seat. This is good to be here. It's going to be a wonderful time. It's, a, it's the time of receiving or loss of rewards is what the Bible says. That God wants to reward us. Salvation is not a reward. It's a free gift. But he wants to reward us. He says he's coming back, and he wants to reward us. And so uh, everything that we've done with our lives, since we've known Christ, with our time, how do you spend your time for Jesus? With your talents and your gifts, how do you spend your talents and gifts for Jesus? With your treasures, your finances, have you given to Jesus? We're going to have to give account to him. And they're going to be tested. And after the test, God wants to reward us. Or it's going to be receiving or loss of rewards, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This is the judgment seat of Christ. You want to be here. You want to be here, right? Say, yes, I want to be here at the judgment seat of Christ. It's called the Bema seat of Christ. It's for believers. It's a wonderful time that we're going to receive rewards. If you're here, you're in heaven, right? You're here in heaven. So you want to be here. There's another seat that is called the great white throne judgment seat of Christ. And that's for people of all time, 
who don't know Jesus Christ as their Savior, who have rejected Jesus Christ as their Savior. And, and this is a seat you don't want to be, but I can imagine people having excuses, coming with all kinds of excuses, because many people think, when I see Jesus, I'm going to say this. But Jesus knew that. He said in Matthew chapter 7, there were people come to me and says, didn't I preach in your name? Didn't I cast out demons in your name? Didn't I heal people in your name? And Jesus says, depart from me, you who practice iniquity, who practice sin, I never knew you. And so this, this is, judgment is going to be a horrible time. You don't want to be here. You don't want, any, you don't want anyone to be here that you know. No one wants to be here because this judgment is, is a finality to it. There's no plea bargaining that this judgment, the great white throne judgment. You can't plea bargain yourself out of it. I'll talk my way out of it. The Bible says in Hebrews 9, 27, just as man is destined or appointed to die, and then after that, to face judgment. So everyone, everyone is going to die one time. We're going to die. We're going to die. And we're going to face judgment. And we're going to be in one of these two lines, the judgment seat of Christ or the great white throne judgment. And my question to you is which one you're going to be in. Which one are you going to be in today? And if you're in this line of the great white throne judgment, if you're in this line, you don't want to be in this line. You want to get out of this line, right? You want to get out. You, you, you say, I've got to get out of this line. But you can't do it on your own. There's no way you can get out of this zone. And every one of you in one of these two lines, either this line, the judgment seat of Christ, which is for believers, or in this line, there's only two. And we're going to have to stand before Christ. And the only way you can get out of this line you need help to get out of this line. And it's only through Jesus realizing who Jesus is, that he's the son of God, and what he did for you, that he died on the cross for your sins. You put your faith and trust in Jesus, right? You accept him as your savior. Uh, you come to him and say, yes, Jesus, I'm a sinner, and I know that you died on the cross, and I accept your finished work on the cross for my sins, and I receive you by faith, the Bible says. And then you're translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. You're translated from the great white throne judgment into the judgment seat of Christ. That would be your destination, the future. And you want to be here, right? Well, we can't get out of this line on our own. We need help. We need Jesus. And if you have not done that, please do that today. Accept Christ as your Savior. That's the only way out of this line. There's no other way. It's only through Jesus. Only through Jesus. But everyone will stand in one of these two lines. Every one of us. You want to be in that line, the judgment seat of Christ. That's a great line to be in. That's a line that's going to be all kind of, we want to be there, right? The fourth description of Jesus, Jesus is coming in power and judgment is what he says. His feet were bronze. We don't know a lot about bronze in the New Testament, but we know a lot about bronze in the Old Testament. Normally it's a reference to humanity. It's a reference to to strength and, and stability is what we find here. And the picture here is Jesus. Holy from the top of his white hair. We sing a song this morning, holy forever, to the bottom of his feet is what it's saying. Holy from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. Tested in the furnace, perhaps uh, here on this earth is talking about, but tested at every point like we were, but what? He never, ever sinned. Think about that. He never, ever sinned. Purity. Holy. Holy forever, as we sing this morning. His bronze glowing in the furnace. The feet of bronze pictured an exalted person with great power. Um, in, in kings in ancient times would have elevated thrones because the people they had to judge would come in. They would be, be beneath the feet of the king. And so the, key, the feet of the king come to symbolize authority. And what we see here now, the red-hot glowing feet of Jesus, it, it's a picture of him in, in power and authority and judgment. Power and authority and judgment. The fifth description of Jesus, Jesus' voice is authoritative. His voice is a sound of rushing waters. Imagine yourself, you and your family, and standing at the brink of Niagara Falls. How many have ever been there? 
Tiger Falls. Yeah, you? I figure everyone said, yes, I've been there. It's not that far away. I, I would urge you to go there. You stand at the brink of Niagara Falls, and the water's rushing over. And, and it's millions of gallons a minute. You can't imagine it in, in, unless you're there. And, and, and it is pretty noisy, isn't it? It's loud. And, and if you're going to talk to somebody, hey, what are you doing? You almost got to scream. You got to shout real loud because they can't hear you. You can, if you talk like this, they're not going to be able to hear you. You're going to have to shout pretty loud to hear you. And he's describing the voice of God, the voice of Jesus here. It's the voice of rushing water. It's loud. It's authoritative. And you don't speak over it when you hear the voice of God. It God when God speaks, we listen. His voice, it says, is sound of rushing waters. It's a very, very powerful voice. And when God speaks, we stop, we listen. We don't talk during while he's speaking. We listen to the voice of God, right? It's that kind of voice. When you hear it, you know it. You just stop. And you don't try to talk over him. You don't speak while he's talking. You listen to his voice. It's distinct. And that's what it's saying, very powerful voice. The sixth description of Jesus, Jesus is the head of his church. And, and I like this. It's described in this way. In his right hand, he held the seven stars, is what it's saying here. You have to read to the end of the chapter and find out that these seven stars are indicated as messengers. It's the word angelos, and many times it's angels, the messengers of the seven churches. But that can be interpreted two different ways. One of them is an angel. Oftentimes, that word angelos is translated angels. But sometimes it can refer Angelos can refer as a messenger, as a pastor of the church or something like that, as a messenger for God or a messenger from Jesus, what it's talking about, to these churches. It could be an angel or, or a pastor. We don't know either way. It could be the angel or the pastor. What's really important is this. The stars are being held by who? Jesus. That's what's important. Jesus is holding those stars. It's showing he's in control, he's sovereign, and they belong to him. And these are just messengers. Whether it's angels or pastors, they're just messengers. That's all they are. But he's in control. And that's what the picture is. Jesus is in control. He's the head of the church. The seventh description of Jesus, Jesus speaks the authoritative word of God. And it's a great picture. Out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. A sword is often referred to as a scripture as the word of God. We see that a few places. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, it talks about the arm of God. It actually says, take the sword of the Spirit which is the Word of God. It tells us what it is. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, uh, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and, attitude, judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Uh, Revelation 19, ver chapter 19, verse 15, when Jesus comes back on the white horse, it says, out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. In other words, he speaks. And his words are so powerful, he strikes down the nations, the, the armies of all the nations. Uh, it is talking about the authoritative word of God here that is such powerful. It, Jesus speaks in judgment as a judge, coming back as a judge. And it's given us that picture. The eighth description of Jesus, and, and this was always Jesus in all of his glory. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance, it's saying here. And the apostle John had walked with Jesus 60 years earlier, and, and he had... Uh, been a part of that disciple group. He had seen Jesus. He seen Jesus and seen the ways of Jesus. He had seen that the, the ways of Jesus indicated an indication of deity along the way. He seen Jesus heal people, only thing that God could do. He heard Jesus say things, only things that God could do. But there's one occasion during those three years when they're at the top of Mount of Transfiguration. Remember that? And, and Jesus 
rolled back the veil of his humanity, kind of pulled it back, the veil of his humanity. Uh, so uh, John was there and Peter and James were there. So they could really see who he really was. And he kind of pulled it back, the humanity of Jesus. Remember, Jesus is the God-man, the perfect God-man, 100% God, 100% man. But he pulls back that humanity just for a moment so they could see who he was. And what did they see? They saw he was God. There was no doubt he was God. Shining in all of his brilliance, all of his brilliance, what they saw. And they're fearful. And now John sees it again. And John is overwhelmed by what he saw. He saw it once before. Now he sees it again. We sing a song here that God is, Jesus is holy, holy forever, right? And we love to use that word, holy. And we think of holy as that he's pure and he's never sinned. And it, it def, definitely indicates that, it, it, that's involved. But the word holy actually means to be set apart, that he's set apart, that he's so distinct, he's so different. That's what we have to, he's so distinct, he's so different that there's no category for Jesus. He's in that category all by himself, way over here. Not even close to us. We're way, way over there. And he's in a category all by himself. And our minds can't even grasp who he is and all that is details of how great and wonderful and amazing he is. He's so distinct in a category all by himself. And we need to fear and have deep respect in all of Jesus. Because that's who he is, right? And I don't know what picture that you have in your collection of Jesus. Help me. The image of your mind to form who he really is to you. I, I don't know what you have. Uh, I think for many people in our culture, they have one or two pictures in their mind, or maybe both. And one of the pictures that people have in their mind is, is the manger scene. They have Jesus as a baby in a manger. Maybe that's the picture you have. And maybe the other picture you have is the cross, that Jesus is on that cross. It's a picture of hope. It's a picture of salvation. It's a picture that Jesus conquers death. But those two pictures don't tell the whole story. They tell part of the story is what they actually do. They're telling you part of the story. What John is showing us is another part of the story. That's what he's doing here. He's showing you another part of the story. For all of us who know Jesus, we need to get the whole scope of who Jesus really is. Don't you want that? We don't want to see part of it. But what John is trying to do for you and I, I want you to get the whole scope of who really Jesus is. So we can see this full picture. That's why it's so important for you and I to get in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So we can get that full scope of who Jesus is. But it's also good that we get into the book of Revelation because that shows us some things that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John doesn't show us, right? That shows us this picture that we're looking at this morning. And it's a different picture what they saw, different picture what we see here. They didn't see him like that. They get a glance, glimpse of him in the Mount of Transfiguration. How do we respond to this? How did John respond? John responded by he was overwhelmed. Look at verse 17. He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet, though dead. Now, this falling down is not getting in a posture of worship. He falls on his knee to play, faces his face to the ground. It's not that. The Bible says he falls as though he just died, falls straight down. I mean, just kind of collapses right there. It's it. It's it. We see that kind of picture in Isaiah chapter 6. Remember where Isaiah the prophet, he saw Jesus, according to John chapter 12, that Jesus was the one sitting in that throne, and he was high and lifted up. When Isaiah saw him, he says, he said, he said, I am undone. I am ruined. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. Woe is me. I'm going to die because I'm in the presence of, I can't describe who he is. That's what he saw there. So we're in the presence of someone who is so distinct from us that he's in a category all by himself that we fall down as though dead. 
We just fall down as though dead. We, we can't describe, we just fall and collapse because I can't take it. It overwhelms me who he is. Some people, I don't know, maybe, maybe you're one of them. I hear people say, when I see Jesus, I'm going to ask him all kinds of questions. My first question, I'm going to ask him, who are the sons of God in like Genesis chapter 6, right? Or who, where did Cain get his wife? You know, people ask that. Or, or they maybe ask a question, where, where, why did you give us four Gospels, God? Or why does bad things happen to good people? I think when we see Jesus, I think every one of us are going to fall down on our faces and go dead. That's what we're going to do. We're not going to be there trying to, so I'm going to say this to Jesus. We're going to fall down as though this, because we're in the presence of someone so distinct, so different from us, that's in a category all by themselves. And there's only one in that category, right? It's God, it's Jesus, only one. No one else even comes close. The angels, nobody comes this close to him. That is so distinct, so different from us that we cannot grasp, we cannot understand. We just look at it and we just fall down. I, I, this just overwhelms me. And every time somebody came in the presence like that, they would fall down like that. When they came in the presence of God's holiness, of his glory. The Old Testament prophets, there was a, a paradigm that they went through. The first thing, they would see, the, heard the voice of God, they fell as dead. They fell down as though dead. And then God would strengthen them. He would give them a message, and they, they would proclaim that message. That's the same thing was happening to John right here, that he, he saw the vision of Jesus. He falls down as though dead. We'll find out next week that Jesus strengthens him, and then he gives him a message. And the message that he gave him was the book of Revelation. That's what he gives him, the book of Revelation. Now, how do we respond? Can you imagine being in the presence of someone, of Jesus, and knowing all the speeches that we plan are not going to work? Do you think, I got all these things I'm going to say to him. And then you come there and you realize, this is not going to work. This is not going to go well for me if I say these things. I can't say those things. can't even get the words out of my mouth. You are in the presence of holiness, that we have to have that deep sense of all who he is, and we fall on our faces though dead. Every one of us will. Every one of us will. That picture of Jesus has to be part of the picture that shapes who he is in your own life. It has to shape who he is. You've got to have that picture. And to realize that one day he's going to wear that robe as a judge. He is. He's going to wear that robe as a judge. And if we fear him now, then we have no reason to fear him in the future, right? If we fear him now. When I say fear him now, I mean have an awe, respect, and reverence for him. That we come and honor him as the king of kings and lord of lords. And to, and to come to him now and fall on our knees and say, Lord, you are my savior. You are my Lord. You are my friend. And one day, you are going to be my judge. And he will, for every one of us. And for those who know Christ, you're not coming with condemnation. He's not going to deal with the sin, but it's that judgment seat of Christ that I talked to you about. You know, so many times we think it's Christ, and I'll ever have to stand before Jesus to give an account. Yes, you will. Yes, you will. Not for sins, but what did you do with your life? And so one day, we're going to have to stand before him. So what does this mean to us? What does this mean? A couple things. For those of us who know Jesus Christ as our Savior, let's keep that picture fresh. Let's get in the gospel so we have that fresh picture of who Jesus is. But also let's read the Revelation chapter 1. It's so important for us to read to get that other picture of Jesus. So we get that whole scope of who he really is. For those who know him, let us gather together as often as we can. Not just for convenience, but let us gather together to worship him. To lift up our voices like we're doing this morning and to proclaim with everything that we have. How great is our God, right? How awesome he is. Is he awesome? 
How great and wonderful. This picture we have in Revelation chapter 1 is an awesome picture. There are our minds, our finite minds cannot grasp all what it means. So we try to understand it. We try to get some descriptions. But it was more than what John could write. There wasn't words to write what he saw. He was writing down what he was accustomed to, to try to help us to understand it. For those of us who know, know Jesus as our Savior, and I hope it's everyone in this room, recognize there are a lot of people in this world that don't know him. And they need your help to get them out of this line. And the only way they're going to get out of this line is through the gospel of Jesus Christ that will translate them from, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light so they can make sure they're, they're in this line. We want everybody to be in this line, right? The judgment seat of, I mean, the, the bema seat of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ, not in this line. Not in, even your worst enemy you don't want in this line because this is eternal. This is forever. There's no plea bargaining. You're not getting there and I'll talk my way through it. No, you won't. No, you won't. It's already been decided where you're going to go. For those who are here today, you don't know Christ. Put your heart and mind. Give him your life this morning. Trust him as your Savior. You know, sometimes people say, all roads lead to God. That's true. You look at me. That's true. But not unto salvation. Every one of us is going to stand before Jesus. We're going to go one or two roads, right? Every one of us is going to stand before him one day. We're going to go one or two roads. And if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior yet, you have a God who loves you more than you can possibly know and understand that he sent his son Jesus, listen, to die on the cross for you. God came down to this earth to die on the cross for you. So you wouldn't have to spend one second in this line of the great white throne judgment. He don't want you to spend there in that time at all. He wants you to be in this line. And it all happens by you understand I'm a sinner and that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins, and I put my faith and trust in Jesus. It translates us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, from the great white throne judgment over to this judgment, the bema seat of the judgment seat of Christ. This is the line we all want to be in, amen? And if you're not in this line, you're not sure, please come and talk to me. And you need to understand two things about who Jesus is, the Son of God, God, and also that he died on the cross for your sins. And the Bible said, it's by grace you've been saved through faith. You come this morning by God's grace and realize, I'm a sinner, and I need Jesus. And you put your faith and trust in Jesus. Please do that today. If you have any questions, please come and see me. For all of us who know Jesus, we know Jesus. Let's get the whole scope of who he is. Let's get the full picture. We love to talk, think about him as a little baby because a little baby can't hurt us in the manger. And we love about the cross because what it does for us, we also have to get the picture that one day we'll have to stand before him and give an account. And there's many people that we know at our workplace, maybe in our family, in our community, that's in this line. And they need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the only thing that will translate them from that line to this line. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, you come and we praise you. We praise you, God, because there is no one no one, absolutely no one like you. You are in a category by yourself. You're distinct. There is no one even close to you. There is no one holy and just and righteous and perfect to all your ways, who's majestic, who's glorious, and who we are in awe of you, God. Our minds cannot comprehend you, who you are. To think about you speak and you created a world, Lord. We can't even imagine that. The power that you have, the holiness that is you. We cannot imagine that. You are so, are so set apart from us and our ways and our thought life. Lord, you are just, just distinct from all others. That any other gods that people have in this world, they don't even measure up to it all. There's only one true God, Jesus. There's only one creator, and it is you. And we come to recognize you now through your son, Jesus Christ, who you sent 
to die on the cross for our sins. And Lord, I pray for each person here this morning that they would come to understand that, that there's only one true God, and the only way we can know him is through Jesus. And I pray that everyone here, Lord, if anybody's here in this line, the great white throne judgment, you would convict them of their sin and the need of a Savior this morning. We pray for their soul, Lord. We pray for their soul. Lord, I pray that you would help them, Lord, to understand that they need Jesus. And he's the only way to get them out of that line. They come and put their faith and trust in Jesus. For all of us who know Jesus, as we come approaching Easter, let us be thankful. Let us praise him, what he did for us, how he graciously went to the cross out of his love for us to demonstrate that love, that he went to that cross. With, he did more than that. He died, but he conquered death by coming out of that cross and rose from the dead. Then he sent it into heaven. Now he stands at the right hand of God. And one day he's coming back in all of his glory and might, and one day he will set up his kingdom. One day each and every one of us will have to stand before him and give an account. As believers, as what we did in the body since we've known Jesus, as people who've never accepted Jesus, Lord, it's a finality to be eternally separated from God. So Lord, we pray for each person that they know Christ. That's what I pray, that everyone's soul, we know Jesus. And if we do, Lord, let's live this life wisely. Let's live this life to glorify you, to realize, Lord, none of them saved. It's not done. I'm not done. Now I'm saved. Now I've just began. I need to live for you. We need to live for your glory in everything. Through my time, through my talents, through my gifts, and through my finances. My finances aren't to use for myself. It's to glorify you, to give what you have asked us to give you, to glorify you with everything in our life. And so, Lord, I pray that for each and every one of us today. Lord, that we'd understand that. And, Lord, if we haven't done that, you are gracious, God, or forgiving, God, that we just come and confess that sin, and you promise to forgive us. But now, Lord, as we come this morning, what I want us to do is realize who you, you are, and we lift up our hearts and minds this morning to just say, how great, great, wonderful, amazing is our God. And there is no one, absolutely no one, like you. Lord, let this morning a splinter you are distinct. You are in a category all by yourself. You are different. You are not like us. And there is no one like you. Let us be in awe of you as we sing this next song. May you be glorified, Lord, through our hearts and minds this morning. And Lord, we ask all these things for that glorious, wonderful, amazing name. In the name of Jesus, amen.